the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here welcome back from a brief hiatus from the show i am very pleased to have on as a guest elisa peters uh engineering manager at netflix welcome elisa Woohoo! <laughs> it is a pleasure to have you on for our audience that don't know you which are probably very few because you're super famous uh can you give our audience a little bit of a backstory about uh, what ultimately led you to software engineering and maybe what ultimately led you to Netflix? Yeah, sure thing. Coming out of high school, I got into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And in order to get in there, you had to declare your major um, before you even entered. And I was like, wow, I have no idea what, <laughs> what I want to study or what I want to ultimately do. So I picked math um, because I was good at it. Um, and so um, I, I figured it would have a lot of different options. And so fast forward to graduating from college, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I felt like the whole world was open to me. And so I decided to just put a pin in San Luis Obispo and decide I'm just gonna stay living here and started looking for jobs and applied for things like being an actuary or being, um, one of those uh, construction road director sign holder people. Um, you know, I, I thought I could always fall back on being a barista or a bartender. Um, but then finally, um, one of the callbacks that I got was for a small web development company. And I had done some light programming as part of my math degree um, and thought it was okay. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll figure out what this is all about. Uh, fast forward another few months and I was had no benefits. It was an hourly wage job and I wasn't making ends meet. And I went to a career fair where they were very excited that I was available to work right away since most of the other people were still in school and they would have to wait until June and it was November. And so I said, here I am. And I got a job at Lockheed Martin. Um, and it was very cool. Uh, place to start. Um, it was a late stage, well-designed three-tier architecture. Um, and it was uh, kind of in the bug fixing stage, which was nice because I got to learn a lot uh, by just doing little things here and there. Um, I actually started in an algorithms analysis. So looking at MATLAB code and writing documents and weaseled my way into Java tickets because I figured that was, was what was going to take me further. <laughs> In, in software engineering. Um, so moved to the East Coast uh, for, I mean, we can talk about it. Uh, basically met my husband on the job at Lockheed. He moved to the East Coast, so then I moved to the East Coast and I got another job with a different government contractor doing R&D type stuff, which was really fun. Um, got to read research papers and essentially prototype implementations and then hand all the dirty work off to someone else. Um, his job moved him back to California, which is where I'm from. Uh, and so I moved back and after working remote for a year and a half, which was not so common back then, decided I wanted to break into Silicon Valley and started interviewing around and interviewed at a bunch of places, um, gave up because <laughs> I was not having any luck and then got sourced by Netflix um, the first time. Worked there uh, for three and a half years, decided that I wanted to try my hand at engineering management, didn't see a path for me at Netflix in the near term future, left to join a startup 
that was by former Netflixers. So I knew the culture was gonna be similar and, and fun. Learned a whole lot about AWS and setting up infrastructure and building things from the ground up. Um, that startup got acquired by Google, spent a short amount of time there and then decided, uh, and, and then was starting over from scratch, right, on that engineering management journey that I ultimately still wanted to get to. Um, you know, rebuilding your reputation from scratch and making the right connections. And I was like, oh, so I, another opportunity came up for me to start right away as an engineering manager at a startup, um, high growth startup, uh, super chaotic. I feel like I must have gained I, at least three years of management experience and the one year that I managed there and decided that it wasn't the right stage of my life or the right company maybe to continue on that journey, went back to being an IC. And after a few months of doing that, the same company ultimately realized that the best place to be an IC that I've ever worked is Netflix. So I went back and uh, um, re-interviewed and was ultimately successful there started on the same day as our, uh, our revered host Max here, which was very exciting, and um, returned back to engineering management at the end of August for the same team that I was hired into. So that's a, a brief whirlwind history. <laughs> that, is a, that is a very helpful world, whirlwind history. And the thing that was on my mind as you're telling us about it was kind of the, the time span that this happened in. And what was happening in the industry over those years? Like, it's pretty, people might not realize this, but the difference between a Lockheed Martin hiring software engineers and a Netflix hiring software engineers is kind of different in kind of the business cycle. Like the last decade has been, more than a decade, has been pretty crazy in Silicon Valley as far as hiring and um, software engineering as a job market goes, especially local to the San Francisco Bay Area. So for people who might not understand what getting into software engineering in a web developer role in San Luis Obispo, sleepy San Luis Obispo might've been like, and then progressing to these different geographic locations you worked in. Uh, can you share a little bit more insight about what was happening at the time that you graduated college and what was happening at the time you moved to the East Coast and back? Totally. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I didn't think that I was going to be able to land a Silicon Valley job in software engineering, only having a mathematics undergrad. I intentionally didn't do any internships. Um, and I also honestly just didn't even know if software engineering was what I wanted to pursue. Um, I also just personally was still craving a bit more independence um, from my parents and didn't think that I was going to be able to afford the rent in the Bay Area on my own uh, before even having a job. Um, so that's kind of why I made that decision. Um, so that was in that was in 2005. So it was, you know, the, the economy hadn't quite crashed yet. Um, <laughs> I, um, I will say that when I so when I moved back from the East Coast, um, and started looking for jobs, that was probably around 2012, beginning of 2012. And the number one question I asked, I got asked was, so why do you wanna leave government contracting? I think there's a stigma around people that work for government contractors. 
And like, it can be warranted because sometimes the way that government contracts are structured, it causes for a lot of bloat and a lot of people who are really not doing a whole lot. Um, so I think there's that stigma that people kind of attach to, to anyone that's been doing government contracting. And I think that there are also a fair amount of people that probably go into government work or government contracting work for philosophical reasons. And so it's probably kind of like a culture fit test, but there's definitely, yeah, that was the number one question I asked, um, got asked. And I will say that after being uh, accepted at Netflix, it took me a long time in 2012 before meeting anybody that hadn't come from Microsoft, Amazon, Yahoo, Google. And I was just like, wow, how did I sneak in this door? <laughs> but, well, skills yeah. wise, what do you think it was that the hiring manager who interviewed you at Netflix was looking for that, you know, made them overlook maybe their prejudices about defense contractors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it was clear there was a there was an interview that was definitely designed to test my knowledge of architecture and distributed systems and software at scale that I just had no foundation or basis at all. Like there, it just wasn't, you know, I was never going to be able to be very successful in that question. But um, what I found out from the interviewer later, who became my colleague, um, I asked the right questions and I didn't I didn't make assumptions about what I knew and what I didn't know and I came into it with curiosity and when given you know some guidance or information I was able to kind of find my way um, through the question in a way that um, that impressed him and I think you know for the other coding and algorithm type interviews um, I just went to, you know, leak code and did as many of those things as I could. Um, I will also say that one of the things that my job um, on the East Coast afforded me was the opportunity to get my uh, master's in computer science. And that I think definitely helped me also break into Silicon Valley. Um, and then personally, I you know, some of the concepts that I learned in school were things that I'd already been doing on the job, but they gave me the appropriate terminology to be able to communicate using the same language with everyone else. Um, so uh, that was a really great opportunity. Although I, I will say I, I don't recommend the work full time and complete your master's degree in two years uh, plan. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> brutal. <laughs> I can imagine. I, I personally had a consideration of going to master's program and have a super similar background to you that I did a math, a math undergraduate degree, did not think I was eligible for Silicon Valley techie jobs, uh, had a diversion in a different career, and uh, thought about doing a master's program, but I didn't think about doing it simultaneously while full-time working, <laughs> I will say. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people don't have a choice, but if you if you true. have a choice, I, I would not recommend it <laughs> or or have a really strong and supportive partner who can have dinner ready on the table when you get home at 915. <laughs> also very true. Very true. So there's two questions I'm curious about. One is the specifics of the things that you mentioned getting out of the master's program that helped reinforce your vocabulary and speaking to the questions that you're asked and you interviewed at Netflix the first time. And the second question is also about what skills you learned when you left Netflix to a startup. It sounds like 
you learned a ton about AWS that was knowledge you didn't acquire when you worked at Netflix. So for our audience of people who are maybe thinking career-wise about software engineering, which do you think would be a more interesting and helpful topic for our audience? Like, do you think hearing about what you learned in the master's was helpful? Or do you think hearing about the difference in skill set you needed at a startup after Netflix? I'll tell a quick story about the master's and then I can um, go into the Netflix AWS startup question. Um, I, th I think the class where I learned the most and struggled the most and had to study the hardest coming from a math background was um, computer uh, architecture, computer organization, like actually how does a computer <laughs> work? Um, because that was like so far afield from what I had done um, in my abstract mathematics degree um, and high level uh, software engineering. Um, so I actually, my husband gave me his undergrad uh, computer organization book. I read that cover to cover. I read my graduate book cover to cover and I just like studied so hard and I did really well and learned a lot about like um, kind of just like foundational computer science stuff that give you just a, even a deeper understanding of um, how high level languages work and compilers and things like that. So I will say that that was, that was good foundational kind of knowledge that you might not pick up on the job, um, but contributes to a broader understanding. Um, back to your other question about um, Netflix and AWS. So the startup uh, was formed by former Netflixers and I was engineer number two. So engineer number one had already kind of decided that we were gonna use AWS versus a, dif a different cloud provider just because um, we had used AWS at Netflix and were familiar um, with some of the concepts um, that, that AWS uses. Uh, I will say I missed the tooling that, that comes from working at a place like Netflix that they provide on top of uh, cloud providers immensely. And I was like, oh, and I will say that from the time I was at that first startup, which was in 2016, to the time that I joined the second startup, which was in 2018, um, 2018, yeah, 2018, even then the actual AWS like user interface had improved a lot. So they, they've definitely done a lot, but uh, but in 2016, it was like, whoa, <laughs> like, how do I map this to tooling I know about at Netflix and how do I learn what I'm doing? And, you know, doing, doing everything from scratch, right? Like setting up build pipelines. Um, we were using Jenkins, um, setting up infrastructure. Um, that first job, I did a lot of that manually um, the second startup job, I actually learned more about, you know, infrastructure as code, set up a lot of infrastructure using Terraform, um, using Circle CI for build systems and, and all these things that are just kind of operational around software. Um, I think ultimately I still would like to start my own company someday. So I think this is all like valuable knowledge, but you're going to get a lot more kind of building from the ground up experience at a startup than than you might at a place like Netflix. Um, all that said, I did have an opportunity to set up a service from scratch um, later in my first stint at Netflix, and that definitely set me up for success um, at the startup uh, since I'd, I'd at least had some flavor of, you know, like within a framework, at least how do you how do you start something from scratch? How do you want to design your code? Um, 
So I don't know if that's what you were looking for in your question. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. Like, uh, I think it can be overwhelming when people are given the advice, if you want to learn about DevOps or if you want to learn about how to run your software in the cloud, make an Amazon account and just start doing stuff. And the reality is there's like 100, there's over 100 AWS subservices at this point. And so yeah. where to even start is yeah. like a, is a black box, I think. Uh, and our audience can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it's a hard uh, domain to get familiar with, especially if you work somewhere and at your first job, maybe you're not the first or second engineering hire, like you just mentioned being at the startup you joined. You, a lot of stuff is already pre-existing for you, even if you're yeah. at a moderate-sized company and not a Netflix. Um, so yeah, that's, I, that's right. And I yeah. think a lot of people attend at startups because you're, especially if it's a um, a VC-funded startup, right? If I mean, maybe if you're bootstrapping too, but there's a a timetable and there's a funding timetable and you're trying to move as fast as you can. And so you tend to, especially at the very beginning, pick technologies that you're familiar with because you don't have time to like fiddle around with like some new thing that you that you don't know about. Um, it's interesting because I, I think the first startup in 2016 was kind of at the beginning, at least of um, Amazon support for containers um, with ECS. Uh, and that wasn't something that Netflix had been doing a lot of, at least not in 2016. Um, we, we were pretty solidly, you know, baking AMIs and using EC2. Um, and there wasn't this whole kind of container infrastructure, container ecosystem. Um, and then obviously it, in between kind of 2016 and um, 2018, uh, Amazon got on the Kubernetes train. So then there was EKS and all these things kind of have like different subtle ways that they, that, that things are orchestrated and that they scale and, and you, at some level, you want to know how things are going to be behaving and what they're going to be doing um, under the hood so that you can understand when your service isn't behaving appropriately, like how to, how to remediate those things. And sometimes, um, I don't know, maybe I'm old school, but they provide so many abstractions that, and you're just kind of told to trust that what's going on under the hood is, is fine and will work and that's all great until it doesn't. And then it really pays to have a deeper understanding of what's going on so that you can so that you can fix things. <laughs> For sure. Like uh, just the subject matter of tracking your spending on AWS is like- Oh my God. Requiring yeah. Yeah. of a PhD, <laughs> not, yeah. not, not literally the academic study of Amazon's billing system, but being able to yeah. know how much am I spending on com compute, how much am I spending on storage, how much am I spending on databases, et cetera, et cetera, and et cetera. It, it can sneak up on you too, because oftentimes you can get like a deal, a good starting deal, especially if you have like a well-connected VC where maybe you can start off with like a hundred thousand dollars, like in your account or something. And so you just kind of don't pay attention to like what you're spending. And then, and then your hundred thousand dollars or your trial period runs out and you're like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so totally. I, the, these are for sure uh, valuable skills that <laughs> they, despite the headaches of them are extremely worth learning 
I think for audience members who are, are curious about what we're complaining about. Uh, yeah, I, I think they give you a good sense of that this is a business. You know, you're not just here like solving problems for fun. You're ultimately contributing to the success of a business. And I think that having that experience or having that awareness or knowledge um, makes you a better employee, even in a place like, you know, Netflix or Google or, you know, it's it, at a larger company, it's those kinds of skills that are going to set you apart from everyone else and, and make you more valuable. So can I, I know this is a tricky topic to speak to because every company is kind of different, but can you illustrate for our audience kind of how engineers who work on this type of thing interact with the business owners around those costs, like how you might explain those costs to the CEO or the CFO, like we're spending five grand a month on blah. And the CFO is like, well, do we need it? <laughs> like how much lower can you take it? And can you, can you speak a little bit to how that conversation has gone for you previous or whose job title kind of owns that conversation within engineering at different employers that you've worked at? Yeah, so I think at, at both of my startup stints, like I have actually been the one who's like, hey, how, like, what are we spending here? Like, we need to keep track of this. Like, are we spending too much relative to like to the amount of user base that we have? Um, what what even is our budget? So the first startup was was small, super early stage. I mean, when I joined, like I said, engineer number two, five employees, I think we grew to the end to be 14 employees um, before we got acquired. And only about half of those were technical staff. Um, we had an in-house um, reporting staff. It was an audio news um, company. Um, and and so, I, you know, I think we were all just kind of finding our way and and um, trying to get traction and then, you know, ultimately got acquired before things were uh, too big of a problem. Uh, at the second company, it was a little bit later stage, um, high growth, you know, kind of in that like 80 to 90 person range was like growing super rapidly, trying to basically double, you know, the tech org or maybe even triple like within a year, like just like crazy, crazy growth. Um, the head, the, the leadership, um, was not, uh, all technical. Like the original leadership was much more media in nature. So there wasn't a deep understanding kind of about like what was appropriate spend or what the budget should be. And I remember for a long time, I was just like asking, is there a budget? What is the budget? Do we need to be taking this into consideration when we're making architecture decisions? And so that was a different kind of challenge. Cause I knew at that point that it was important. Um, and it was hard for me to try and find the answers. I mean, I was, I was leading the platform, uh, you know, um, infrastructure API team. Um, so we were definitely using the most resources um, on the tech side. And I just, I'm not sure that I ever, <laughs> I don't think I ever got any answers. So, you know, we just kind of worked with the best that we could and tried to kind of be moderate, I guess, and what we were deciding to use. Um, and, and make those trade-offs basically of like getting software to market versus going cheaply. I mean, on AWS, um, I can give an example. We were talking about like, should we be using Lambda, which like allows us to really focus more on our business logic um, and less on kind of the deployment infrastructure piece, um, or should we be trying to 
use EC2, which allows you to be like, you know, pretty tight um, if you're if if you know what you're doing um, budget wise. So. So yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I have any good solid advice other than like, yeah. <laughs> not needed, not needed. I, I think this is a universal problem that our audience should be aware of is oftentimes as the engineer or a technical member of the, the business, sometimes or oftentimes you are the most informed <laughs> about what costs are and, and the trade-offs and like Lisa's saying, you got to make sure that you don't surprise anybody. You, you kind of want to get a temperature check of what is our budget. Like, um, <laughs> under, try to try to grasp at an understanding of the, the budget trade-offs you're making when you're designing your systems uh, and trying to meet the needs of the business with software. So the, the next topic I wanted to, to cover is about the IC individual contributor path as a software engineer, as opposed to being a manager of individual contributors or a manager of other engineers. And you've been in both those roles. Uh, for audience members that are, you know, maybe they're individual contributors now and uh, curious about what um, they might be doing role-wise 10 years later, 20 years later, um, from your personal experience and from peers you've had and managers you've had, can you paint a picture for audience of what the different roles are like and just how radically different the skill sets are to be successful in either? Sure. So I, I think, um, you know, there, there's some overlap. So I, I will say I, I've always, you know, people have always told me that I, I'm a natural leader and, and have, you know, kind of a innate uh, sense of at least some leadership skills. So as an IC, particularly as I kind of um, progressed in my career, I did a lot of um, cross-functional large-scale projects where I took on kind of a project manager hat in addition to doing technical implementation. Um, a lot of just kind of getting alignment from stakeholders, making sure people were communicating, connecting dots. Um, you know, especially as I got uh, more senior. So when I when I got hired back into Netflix the second time. I was a more senior member of the team um, as an IC, and that was uh, kind of a new experience for me being hired into a team as with the intent that like, you know, you're going to hopefully help like force multiply on the team or up level the team or work well with others. And so um, that that was that took some figuring out to make sure I was kind of spending my time on the right things, um, trying to, you know, increase um, a sense of operational excellence, coding standards, um, you know, asking questions, um, just just trying to, to be a good example culturally. Um, and so a lot of those things um, overlap uh, with when you move into engineering management. You want to be, you know, a leader. You want to be able to build relationships within your team, outside your immediate team, across organizations. Um, you want to be able to uh, up-level your team and, and ultimately um, make them successful. Uh, the differences really lie in once you become, um, especially like a frontline manager, a manager of individual contributors, um, you're, you're also focused a lot on hiring and building out the team and you know adding to the team and, and what, what's missing? What are the things that are missing that are going to just like make your team 
even better, uh, more, more diverse in terms of experiences and skill sets, um, more diverse in terms of backgrounds and opinions that they're going to have, um, you know, making sure you have the right ratio of gluey people to people who can go deep to people who can go broad. Um, those are all things I think that you don't tend to think about as much as an IC. You're kind of just like thinking about your immediate team and you're not really thinking about like, oh, what's missing from the team? Um, and my manager did a good job before I returned to engineering management about like kind of setting me up for success, you know, talking through some of his decision making that he'd been having, um, allowing me to kind of run our quarterly planning and road mapping and build up some of those relationships ahead of time. Um, and so that that's that's kind of that that was helpful. Um, and then I think you know another thing that you're not really dealing with as um, as an individual contributor that you are as an engineering manager are just those people dynamics. You know conflicts come up within the team, and I've definitely done some conflict resolution as an IC, and I've done a lot more conflict resolution <laughs> as an engineering manager both the previous time um, and. And I'm sure it will happen this time. It's it's still fairly new, um, but it, it's just more of your focus, right? You're trying to you're ultimately just trying to make sure that the team is healthy and has good relationships with other teams. Um, and so it's just a lot more of that that thinking about people, thinking about um, individuals' career growth. I think that when you when you're mentoring someone as an IC, um, I think it's a little bit different than when you're helping them with their career growth as an engineering manager. You know, the, the relationship dynamic is different. They see you as different. Like you have the power to fire them, you know, um, or promote them or give them raises. Um, and so it, it has to be treated a little bit differently and it feels like more of a responsibility. Um, I will say they both have their own set of problems and I've been kept up at night both by technical problems and by people problems but you know for me and and being kind of um, less experienced on the management side the people problems tend to keep me up at night more than the the technical problems because the technical problems will either get solved or they won't and you know at least working for Netflix it's not a huge deal it's not you know people are hopefully not going to die if I don't solve <laughs> some technical problem um and you know uh people won't die if i don't solve some people problem but like it's you know it's people's lives here it feels higher stakes um and i i think you just have to think of it as a role change you're acting more as an enabler of others than you are solving the problems yourself so you're asking questions versus offering solutions mostly um and so it's just being able to apply that different lens and and think about the problem in, in different ways. So I, I've got a couple of follow-up questions to that. One, one is about the, the three years of management learnings you got in that one year uh, at the startup. I wanna hear about that a little more, but first I also wanted to get a sense of maybe what, what do individual contributors miss about the recruiting process that managers know? or that managers are thinking about in the recruiting process for their teams? Like, do ICs not understand maybe the types of holes in the team that prompt recruiting or the holes on the team that prompt offer making to candidates that 
they might disagree with or that type of thing, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's, um, I don't think it's a skill set or knowledge that are necessarily missing. I think honestly, it's um, more a question of time. You know, you're, you're, you're paid to solve the technical problems. You're paid to assess someone's technical capabilities and, you know, and culture fit. Um, and so I, I think, you know, if there were a team member who wanted to participate more or maybe wanted to try out and see what hiring was all about and play a bigger role in that process, then I think that you, um, you know, your manager could support you in that. And I know um, some managers who kind of uh, allow ICs on their teams to participate in like the preliminary manager phone screen and, and help try to suss out and get experience there. Um, and so it's it's not a big secret. I think it's just a matter of um, spending um, each employee, you know, manager and IC spending time in the ways that are going to be ultimately um, the best for the business. And um, if, you know, the growth of the employee towards management is the best for the business, then they'll participate more fully in that process. Um, uh, and if it's not, then then they won't. So I think it's more a question of, of time spent. And I think good managers will reach out to their teams and ask them for their opinion on where the holes are. Because as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking about cost, um, the engineers are often closest to the problem and know the most details. So I have a quick aside anecdote about this, which is I remember participating in an interview loop for a candidate at a startup I worked at and we made an offer and he accepted and due to a flaw in the applicant tracking platform we were using at the time, the recruiter who managed it for the company did not properly lock down access to historical candidates uh, scorecards that their interviewers uh, maybe wrote up about the candidate. And so this guy joined the company was tasked with using the applicant tracking tool to interview a candidate and immediately saw all of the reviews his now coworkers had written about him in the interview process. Nice. <laughs> I'm remembering that. I'm thinking about how that's a <laughs> super gross violation of like probably all kinds of legal issues, but also just terrifying for people who might've written critical things that, uh, they are weary of the, the new hire reading, I suppose. I, I mean, I, I think the lesson is the same as anything. Like, don't put anything in writing that you are afraid could come out and paint you in some sort of negative light. Like, absolutely, you know, absolutely agreed. Absolutely. You, agreed. Be, you be honest, you be truthful and you stand by what you write and you'll be good. <laughs> that's yeah. actually that's actually an interesting concept is that maybe super transparent employers should hand over the the reviews that their interviewers their candidates interviewers uh, wrote up about new hires that would be really illuminating and yeah i would guess it might equip new hires for a better understanding of what uh their weaknesses are what their strengths are that might that's not such a bad idea <laughs> Could be. It, it's hard, right? Because interviews are just like, you know, they're that one data point in time. And and sure. ultimately, you know, three months on the job is going to show more than than that interview um, True. than that yeah, interview too, did. So you risk the you risk your new hires putting too much uh, weight on a weak signal. Yeah. Yeah. 
So coming back to the three years of experience in one year, that sounds like a bargain. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it shaved years off your life from stress. So it's it's possible. I have more more wrinkles and more gray hair for sure. Although uh, I will say that one of the things that made that so stressful was probably that I um, had a, a very young child at the time. So it was just like craziness all around. But but yeah, I I think you know I I got hired in. Um, I. I wasn't straightforwardly told that I was going to have an existing team when I got hired and I started the job and I found out I had an existing team and there was an individual on that team that was not thrilled that I had been hired because um, uh, this person thought that they should have taken the role of the manager. And so that was, you know, um, a challenge that you are going to face, especially if you um, are kind of on a path to get promoted to be the manager of the team you're on. If there's other people on the team that are also gunning for the job that don't get it, it's just a dynamic and a hurdle that you're going to have to get past. So all of this is like valuable learning, but I just feel like I had to deal with so much um, all at once. Um, so, so that was one of the things I think I already mentioned that you know, the senior leadership was more media oriented. And so it was, it, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to recreate an environment like I'd had at Netflix. Um, and I think it, it taught me a lot of lessons about how important culture is and how different companies have different cultures. And you can't just like, you know, shoehorn one idea of culture into another idea. Um, and there was not super clear product direction. So I was, you know, helping with a lot of the product direction um, in addition to engineering management, in addition to also helping do implementation because we were so short staffed at the time, in addition to helping things like, because the company at large was super non-technical and had a small technical staff, we were helping out with things like marketing campaigns, wanting to do tracking pixels and IT problems. And it's just like everything under the sun. Um, you know, once we got a little bit more staffed out, um, I think that the organization was running like a much bigger company that it needed to be. And so there was all this process. Um, so there was all this you know, kind of managing sideways was difficult, managing down was difficult, not least of which, because I was so inexperienced. I mean, I think the first time that you manage, no matter where you are, there's going to be challenges. Um, and then managing up was difficult. So I just felt like, like every, everything was just like super, super difficult. Um, but there were just like a lot of, a lot of lessons learned. Um, you know, it was kind of a bi-coastal experience with like a main hub in New York and a main hub in San Francisco. And I had remote employees. So I, I think, you know, ultimately it set me up for a lot more success with what we've been dealing with all of us the last year and a half and um, the future of where most companies are going, which is remote friendly. You know, I, I've built up some of those best practices and hope to learn even more. Um, but it just was, yeah, it was, it was intense. This <laughs> is super intense. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would do another high growth phase startup. It was kind of, they talk about these inflection points in a startup's life. Uh, and I think that 80 to 90 person 
maybe I've seen it also as like 90 to 120 people, but there's an inflection point that happens where the culture you had and the practices you had all just start falling apart all at the same time. <laughs> and everything just turns into chaos. <laughs> and then like you start having success on top of that. And it just kind of all was insane. <laughs> yeah, that, that number is, I think, close to Dunbar's number, which is that it's a psychological number that the normal human can close retain relationships close relationships with. Yeah. So you <laughs> just your mental energy can only have so many close relationships with other human beings that when you start teetering on the limits of that, you start having no idea who that person is. You have no idea what their motivations are or their skill sets. And so I, that, that, that number, the numbers you're throwing around sound like they're right at that limit. And yeah. Uh, hey, hopefully, hopefully when people reach that limit or that when a business reaches that limit, it's due to, you know, product market fit and success. <laughs> and so you're that's failing right. upwards. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's why you see the pattern happen over and over and over again, because it's, it's just not even, uh, I mean, you want to establish good culture, even when you're small, because you want, you want to start from a, a good foundation, but it, you know, it's not worth time putting in processes when you don't need processes, you know, and so you just kind of get by as long as you can until you find product market fit. And then you're like, Wah! I, I, know, I know this is kind of a big question about remote work and what work culture might be like in COVID, but I'd be curious to hear what you think about how optimal work culture has changed since remote work took hold with COVID and a lot of lockdowns in the United States and maybe what might've been a winning culture when people were working in an office together, how, how might uh, uh, working cultures have, be changing uh, to be more optimal in a remote work setup? Do you, have any, do you have any words of wisdom for audience members who might be going through that or getting their first entry level job at an employer in this climate? Oh, I have a, I have a lot of oh, a lot of empathy, a lot of heart for people who are trying to onboard remotely. Like that just has to be so, so hard um, to not even have a chance to like meet your team at all and then start working remotely. Like that would be just really hard for me personally. Um, I think in, in tech, so we'll talk about tech and we'll talk about big tech. There's been a lot of companies that have had quote unquote flexible work policies. You know, there's kind of this expectation that you'll mostly be in the office, but if you have like something personal you need to take care of, you know, and you need to work from home for a day, then that's like cool. Um, but there's a big difference between having a flexible work policy where the cultural norms are still largely centered on like the expectation that most people will be in the office every day and um, a, a work environment where the expectation is that some people will be permanently remote and some people will be coming into the office 50% of the time and some people will be coming into the office 100% of the time. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think there's probably not been a better time to be a remote worker, but I think that a lot of companies still have a long way to go and really building up those asynchronous best practices. Um, it, it's, it's a culture change and culture change is never quick. Um, 
and and there's a big difference between knowing what you should be doing and actually doing it. Um, so as a simple example, you know, you have team members that are working in other time zones. Um, you know, I'm in Pacific time zone. I have uh, coworkers that are basically across the entire US. You know, I'm like, oh, I'll just shoot this person a Slack message at the end of the day. Oh shoot, it's eight o'clock there. Even though we literally within our team just talked about like, some good norms and scheduling messages to send later or reminding yourself the next morning to send it. Um, so it just takes time to change those old patterns um, that you've developed and really lean into more of like an asynchronous nature. And I think there's probably still, I mean, the, the big difference between remote pre-COVID and remote during COVID is that you don't have those regular in-person touch points. I think that a key to success that I've read and also experienced in any remote culture, um, remote, first cu remote first culture is like regular in-person, everyone gets together, like at least twice a year, sometimes four times a year, um, because it just, uh, I don't know. They haven't. I don't think they've come up with the right technology solution yet to really replace what happens um, when you get together in person with somebody. Um, and I think even even just having those sparse regular touch points just can go such a long way towards building trust. I mean, that's the only way I gained trust with the team that I inherited um, the first time I was an engineering manager was. The first week that I started, they flew out to California and then regularly, probably once a quarter, um, either once a quarter or once every other month, um, I would fly out to New York. And I don't think there's any way that we could have established the same level of trust through just, you know, video conference one-on-ones every week. So and any any parting advice or, or guidance to people who are onboarding remote who Obviously, I think people should definitely go meet their managers and coworkers and such and reports if they're in a management role, uh, if they're onboarding or otherwise. Um, but any advice for maybe people who are starting their first software engineering jobs remotely, what are some uh, techniques to build trust if they haven't yet uh, gotten to meet their coworkers in person yet? I think don't be afraid to ask, especially your immediate team for like, like casual one on one time, like, hey, let's chat for half an hour, not about work and have coffee or eat lunch. Um, and it feels, you know, much higher touch, right, than everyone being able to eat lunch every day or at least once a week. Um, but it's so important to just kind of have those touch points with people that are, you know, hey, what'd you do last weekend? Hey, what are you like, what's going on outside of work or even what's going on at work? Um, and just find out about, find out about people and show that you care about people and show a side of yourself and anything, anything you can kind of do, you know, if, if you are not a shy person, you know, maybe, maybe volunteer to like, give a little like here's a brief history of me in your team meeting um anything that you know can humanize you and um, humanize your coworkers to you is is worth investing in even if it feels like you might be bothering people um if your teammates are good then hopefully they'll assure you that you're not bothering them 
for sure, for sure. Yeah, I think people in general are um, overestimating the bother they're causing by reaching out and wanting to socialize remotely. I think uh, that's a great lesson. <laughs> well, cool, Elisa. Okay, spoken like a true extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally fair. That's totally fair. Alisa, <laughs> I want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been pretty rad having you on. And I think our audience are also sharing my gratitude. So, Alisa, yeah, right. thank you for coming on. Thanks. This was super fun. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.